Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sharino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Oh, it's so good to be back. You're back, guys. Adam. Finally. <sighs> you miss, you missed me in the studio. Of course I did. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's hard. I, I, I love to drink Dirty Shirley's with you in the studio. Never yeah. again. <laughs> Spill Never them on his stuff. Yes. Again. <laughs> I, immediately, no. I'm telling you, I've seen what I needed to see. Immediately, no. Fair. I just, although we did have a Dirty Shirley this week. We at did. At BCB. People are, Zach, people are canning Dirty Shirley's as RTDs now. Oh, I saw something about this. I'm so terrified. <laughs> so terrified. It was, I mean, it tasted like cherry Sprite. Yeah. Like like alcoholic cherry sprite. It really wasn't that sweet actually. It wasn't that sweet. It was more like a yeah, like a like a It didn't taste dark like a dirty cherry sprite. Shirley. No, it didn't taste like a dirty Shirley. <laughs> it was like a little better, but also like mm-hmm. I don't know why I would drink it, but you know, teach their own. Anyway, Zach, what have you been drinking recently, man? <laughs> Not that. Thank God. Uh, Good. I think the two things I've had recently that um are of interest. So one is the um in sort of in light of our conversation from this past Friday about Cabernet Sauvignon, I was then like moved to drink some Cabernet Sauvignon over the weekend and uh, in particular had a nice uh, Walla Walla Cabernet Sauvignon from Andrew Janik, who's a winemaker here uh, okay. in Seattle. And uh, his, uh, it's called uh, Baba Yaga. It's a, you know, from a couple of different vineyard sites in, in Walla Walla. And it was like, you know, my we had steak and drank Cabernet Sauvignon. It was like uh, maybe kind of basic, but also delicious. And I was reminded, as I was when we recorded that episode, of like, you know, there's a reason people love cab. I mean, I think people kind of focus on it too much. And mm-hmm. uh-huh. people who like cab might like other things, too, from time to time. But mm-hmm. like, as I said on that episode, can't really hate on cab. Um, and no. then the other thing I had was um, I did some um, I had been tasting some stuff that uh, was relevant for a story that I mentioned I was writing. And now is actually out on the site um, about what I have decided to call multi-fruit wines. Mm hmm which I find really fascinating. They are this sort of like very small, but but growing category of wines that are fermentations that mix wine grapes with other fruits. Uh, so mostly apples and pears, although you're seeing it with some with plums. I think you see some people doing other things. And um, in particular, I had a couple of bottles from Art and Science, which is uh, in Oregon in the Willamette Valley. And they're really interesting. I mean, there's there's if you kind of pick the right grape variety and the right apple or pear or whatever variety, you actually get this really interesting resonance between the fruit flavors in both. Um, and the the resulting drink can be really quite tasty and, and interesting. And um, they're, they're a little, you know, they kind of, uh, I would say they, they can, they can be a little strange and like sometimes take a little bit of like, okay, I have to put myself in the right frame of mind for this kind of drink. Um, but as it's starting to be nicer weather here and um, it, just in general, they're, they're really interesting to me and, and often pretty tasty. So what can you kind of compare it to? Because I'm curious. I, I've never yeah, had one myself. Is it like more like a wine, like a traditional grape wine or something? I don't know. I, I, I picture like kind of like a kombucha. No, I, I would say that the, what they don't haven't mostly had is like that really kind of like yeasty fermenty quality um, okay. with the exception of like one that I tried that definitely was more on that really kind of like yeah funky side. I would say that what mm. they taste most like are either one of two things. So if they're you at can. least kind of say what? <laughs> Just joking. Keep going. <laughs> they're, I said they're, they're either um you know, if they've got a, a good percentage of wine grapes in them, then I would say they taste like the variety that you're expecting, but uh-huh. with a sort of like the way that apple or pear cider has a kind of like 
tanniny quality and kind of a like a textural component to it, a dryness to it that's like a little different than wine. Mm-hmm. Um, they often have that. And the ones I've had that are made with like uh, red grapes and possibly red fruits or even with apples, those are more like, it's not really like sangria, but the fruit character is more Mm. overt and they weirdly have tasted more like you get more of that like almost fresh ripe fruit character than you even might find in the wine itself. And some of that's maybe because there some of these are getting done through carbonic maceration. So they're kind of accentuating the fruit character. They're definitely like mm. not wines to seller. They're wines to drink like right away, but, mm-hmm. um, but they're good and fun and weird. And I kind of dig those things from time to time. So, so why are people doing it? Zach? Like, is it just like for fun in the same way? Like <laughs> this is cool. And like, let's do it. Or like, and do you know who kind of like started it? And cause it, it sounds, you know, it seems like there's a, a, f- a, Good amount of people who are now doing it in Washington, Oregon, California. Um, yeah, you're California. seeing it on the West Coast a lot. Like, and why? the East Coast, too. Um, well, I mean, I, I encourage people to read the piece. Um, I'm not going to just repeat what I wrote there because there is some uh, of that in it. But you yes, didn't, Adam. I'm piece. sure you did. Click on our I'm website. Just saying, <laughs> read the piece. Um, yeah, vinepair.com. You might have heard of it. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think the reasons are kind of twofold. One is just people are interested in experimenting, um, and there's a lot mm. of. Um, you know, maybe grape material floating around. There's often a lot of interesting kind of like orchard fruit the, in the on the West Coast stuff that, you know, is maybe not really commercially viable on its own. And we've talked about sort of in, on the podcast that cider has kind of not really grown the way that some people thought. So there may be some loose kind of fruit out there that people can get their hands on r- without paying a ton of money. I think the other reason is that some of these people do see it as being, you know, kind of the way it was viewed historically as kind of this um, hedge against relying on a single crop, right? You know, one of the challenges that we're seeing with wine is that certainly individual varieties and even wine grapes as a whole are a little bit of a monoculture in some places. And so if you're kind of balancing out your production Mm. with this other fruit that might do better with different growing conditions that might be in some cases like much more resistant to smoke taint, say, which is something that came up with Mm -hmm. multiple producers I talked to, that these other fruits are just not going to show uh, the effects of uh, wildfire smoke in the same way that wine grapes might. So you're kind of maybe giving yourself a little bit of a bridge there. And then I think the last thing, and most interestingly that a couple people alluded to with me is like, some of them see it as a more honest reflection of terroir, that they're not just looking at the you know, sort of sense of place through one particular fruit or one particular variety, but in the same way that some people might argue that a field blend of different varieties is a more accurate reflection of a place. Well, some people might think that a blend of multiple fruits in the same fermentation might be a more accurate representation of a sense of place than just relying on wine grapes. So, you know, take that mm-hmm. for what it's worth. Cool. I think that's what about super you, interesting. Yeah, um, I I've had a lot to drink in the past <laughs> week. I think. Wow. Yeah. Um, oh, I went gosh. to a really lovely dinner, uh, cognac dinner, the other night um, at Gage and Tolner in Brooklyn um, for Louis the Thirteenth, which God, I've never so I've never had before. <laughs> um, so that was really special. But we also had some lovely wines that evening as well. Um, one was a uh, Francois Chidam uh, Boudoir. I think it was a Bouvray, mm. which was delicious. Um, and then to pair with the exceptional steak there, um, they ordered a Chateau Simon uh, oh, Pellet nice. Rouge 2017, which was awesome. Mm. Um, and I've never had that before either. So I, I that whole drinking experience, the whole like dining experience there it's and amazing. drinking experience was amazing. Yeah. So that was, uh, I think those were the highlights from the past week. We also yesterday... Yesterday? <laughs> what uh, day yesterday is it? Yesterday and Tuesday. Yeah, we but went, mostly Tuesday. We went to Bar Convent Brooklyn mm-hmm. um, for this year's trade show, and and that was really interesting. We got to drink a lot of interesting stuff and meet some really cool people. What was your What was your standout, Adam? 
So my standout, ooh, that's good. I think I think Hendrix had the best booth. Oh yes, by far. Um, I think because they had the best bartenders. I think the thing <clears throat> that I was really interested to see is so many brands showed up in a big way. What was curious is like how many brands showed up, but then like had staffing people or like cater waiter type bartenders, like making just a drink for the brand. And they didn't really know a lot about the drink or the brand. And I think the people whose booths and look, talking to members of the trade who, you know, I respect their opinions, who they all also said was their best booth where the booths were like, it was bartenders. They really, they know really well behind the booth, like making cocktails with that brand. And I think the most successful one was Hendrix and, uh, through Shannon Mustafar, who was written for us, but is also, you know, probably one of the most well-known sort of tiki mixologists. Tropical drinks, yeah, yeah experts. Yeah. Uh, she has a women who tiki group, mm-hmm. and it's all really, really accomplished female bartenders. Right. And so they tapped her to, like, staff the booth. And so it was all these really well-known female bartenders, like the owner of Dead Rabbit, like mm-hmm. just, Jillian Bosa. you know, yeah, just so many awesome people. And so that I think was just a draw. I mean, they, I think they had the deepest line to the majority of the time. But I thought that that was so smart because, you know, Shannon is a rum expert, yep. um, but they had her at Hendrix. It was and awesome. so it was they had this smart. really cool women who tiki activation for a gin brand, yeah. um, which felt really unexpected and really cool. Totally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, then I thought, you know, some, some other brands did really cool things, but the, the, the biggest trend I noticed at BCB this year was twofold. One, there was just a ton of agave yeah. in mm-hmm. all forms, including Zach, an agave bourbon. Oh, so, like, literally, we had a bourbon. Uh, Joanne and I went to Sazerac, and they have a brand, Devil's River. Okay. And they and in their, you know, so Sazerac, for those who aren't familiar, own a lot of different brands. One of the but one of the distilleries they own that's obviously probably the most celebrated bourbon distillery in the country right now is Buffalo Trace because okay. it makes Elijah Craig, Pappy, you know, George T. Stagg, all that stuff, right? And they also obviously have a lot of other brands, and one of the brands is Devil's River. And this Devil's River brand, they say they bring it down to proof, and then they sweeten it with agave. And, like, on the label, it just says Devil's River agave bourbon, and there's a huge agave plant. And we were talking to, I think he's... It was, under, it was unclear to me if, like, Sazerac fully owns it or they're just distributing it, et cetera. So I think we talked to the owner. It seemed like he was the owner, yeah. And he was saying it's the number, it's his number one seller now. It's very, very popular. Uh, this is so obvious to me, right? Like, it just seems like the most obvious thing you could do is put a coffee in your bourbon. Yeah. And it was just, like, sweeter, right? Sweeter. And it mm-hmm. almost tasted like we were drinking, like, if you would have poured it over ice, I would have thought I was drinking, like, a watered-down old-fashioned. Huh. Mm-hmm. Like a little so bit of a watered down. It was, but like he said, like they can't keep it in stock. What was the other one? A coffee one? He had a coffee one too, but like this one clearly was more popular. But then just so many tequila brands, so many mezcal brands, more than I've ever seen at BCB before. And not just from like the larger companies that obviously had their brands there, but like everyone was mm-hmm. there. Also Amari. And then, yeah, tons of Amari, like yeah. tons. And Joanne well, and I were wondering. Well, that's what we were wondering is, like, did all the brands choose to come to this one because they know it's in New York and they know it's a big market? Because there were brands that, like, I had never seen before. And interestingly, brands I'd never seen before who clearly seemed to have budgets to do some really nice build-outs, which mm-hmm. was really surprising because there were brands I – some brands I, like, didn't really know well. And I'm like, oh, that's a very nice booth that you mm-hmm. built that's very well-branded. I mean, I think you sort of see, like, who who goes all out at these things, yeah. right? You know, like, LVMH built this – 
huge installation with like four different bars that were themed by each one of their brands. Uh, Spirit of Gallo now, as they're calling themselves, like the spirit side of Gallo had like this massive build out that when you walked into one of the rooms, like really kind of like was announcing themselves to the world as also a spirits company with all of their brands. I think the ones they own and the ones they also import like Montenegro and um, select spritz and diplomatico, but then also like New Amsterdam and, and that kind of stuff, which is really interesting. Uh, and then you had smaller brands who had like their own, just like one footprint. Right. And then you had some trade organizations. It's it, BCB is really an interesting experience, right? Yeah. Because I think tails is, is less of a trade show. Like they'll have like themed people walk around, walk around tastings, but then it's tails is mostly about parties. Tales of the cocktail. This is really like people are there for this. And, it, so, yes, there are parties as well, but I do think it probably is a little bit easier for someone who's, like, trying to just discover new things to mm-hmm. discover them because it's all in one place. Yeah. Um, and so maybe someone who didn't realize that Gallo had such a huge spirits portfolio learned for the first time this week. Yeah. Um, or, you know, never thought to use Hendrix in a tiki drink, right? And so I think those are the benefits of the show. But, yes, yeah, so we tried a lot of stuff there. I think there were hun- hundreds of booths, right? Hundreds of booths. Yeah. Um, and then for me, besides that this week, the things I drank uh, is I would say – so I went to Ernesto's. Yes. And I had their – Spanish a Spanish restaurant in New York City. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I had their version of like a dirty martini. Um, right. And it is basically, it's called like the Gildatini or whatever. So for those that are familiar with sort of the, the top, like tapas style pinchos, the Gilda is always like a anchovy, a like sort of sweet pepper and then an olive. And so they do two of them on top of this martini. And the martini is gin, vermouth, and then like the dirty is like anchovy brine. Yeah. Ooh. And it was really good. This sounds so, very similar to what I had at Nudebrink. Interesting. With the same kind of combination. So, and I think some of the tincture on top. Yeah. It's almost like, I mean, it was interesting. Like I'm not a dirty martini person. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like drinking salt water. Mm-hmm. In, in a lot of ways, but I think because it is so salty and funky, I drank it very slow because it's just like, it's it's a lot, I think, for at least for me, like, I'm like, this is a lot of salt to take in in one drink. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I thought it was a really interesting martini, and then yeah, it, was just, it felt like it's been a lot, it's a very spirit-heavy week just because of BCB and everything that's in town. Yes. I'm looking forward to getting back to wine this weekend. <laughs> well, speaking of spirits. Yes. I'm going to jump us into our topic for today. It's actually a listener-submitted question that we're going to kind of discuss. Um, this is coming from Josh Colombo. Hey, Josh. Thanks, man. Shout Always out submit to you, your Josh. questions, y'all. Yes. Please do. Um, podcasts at vinepair.com. Mm-hmm. Um, so today we're talking about bourbon. Bourbon. Josh says bourbon is obviously very popular these days. Its popularity seems to only be increasing. He, he mentions that a number of distilleries, major distillers, are uh, have announced expansions or have already expanded to keep up with this demand, seemingly. Josh wants to know, do you think all these distillery expansions can truly meet this growing demand? Do you think all these distilleries actually want to fully meet the demand, as it seems like some benefit greatly from the perception of luxury exclusivity? Do you guys have any thoughts on changes, trends in the spirits world that may cool the popularity of bourbon whiskey in the future? So, this is a great question. Awesome question. Like, awesome question. And yeah, so for those who are unfamiliar, Beam, 
Buffalo Trace, uh, Makers, they've all gone uh, bullet. They've all gone under huge, huge expansions. MGP, MGP, huge, Mm -hmm. like multi, multi multi-million, even billion-dollar expansions. And so one would assume that could mean that they're doing that to be able to, like let's say, you know, in the case of Buffalo Trace, make more stag or, you know, some of the other – so yeah I'm, I'm curious what what you both think first um we did a little research on this ask some people some recon some recon at bcb because <laughs> this question came in so i have a little bit of some uh, a little bit of intel here but but you know you, do you guys think they're trying to like that they would want to meet the demand because at some point like isn't it actually kind of cool that everyone's searching for their bottles yeah i think that these distilleries might try to meet demand, right? Mm-hmm. They're doing these expansions. It seems to be that's the reason why, but I, I think they ultimately won't be able to. Mm-hmm. Um, There's some new data from IWSR that came out recently that by the end of 2022, whiskey will be bigger than vodka by volume in the mm-hmm. U- United States. It's clearly growing, continues to. It's not slowing down, like Josh mentioned. Um, but I think that, especially like these bigger major distillers that we're talking about and the more coveted brands, they will never compromise the integrity of their liquid um, just to meet demand. And I think it's because they don't have to. Um, I think maybe on the lower end and the less premium space, Mm -hmm. they will um, make more and try to meet the demand. Mm -hmm. But I think we've just seen that people are too willing to pay well beyond MSRP and to hunt for these bottles for a shortage to really affect the bottom line for any of these major distillers. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're very right there. What do you think, Zach? Well, I think that what I would say is that where the risk to some of these producers would lie is not so much um, suddenly, you know, diluting the market at the top. Um, I don't think they're going to do that for for the reasons Joanna stated, and also just the kind of more obvious one that it's not in their best interest. Like mm-hmm. they obviously may not be perfectly served by the current state of play, where like old bourbon is hard to find and there's just not you know we're, we're running into this problem where the stuff that people really want wasn't made in it was made in very minuscule quantities 20 years ago and mm-hmm. by the time you get you know as as bourbon started picking up and people started producing more and there was more money flowing into the industry we're still a ways away from those uh bourbons that were made in the early 2010s hitting the market uh in that you know luxury category but what I do think you want to, what these places want to avoid, is some of what you saw happen in that period in the mid, early to mid 2010s, when the you know shortage hit all of bourbon. It wasn't just the premium mm-hmm. stuff; it was the small scale. I mean, sorry, the uh, the sort of lower end stuff um, that just there wasn't there wasn't production enough of like things like your sort of basic level Maker's Mark. And there's a reason why Maker's had this whole kerfuffle about lowering the proof because it was kind of right. seen as the only way they could. Yeah you know, kind of meet demand was to to essentially stretch it a little bit. And there was a bunch of pushback and um, they eventually, I think, walked away from that idea. But what these places don't want to do is cede market share to one another because they can't meet market demand. And that's, yeah. I think, much more concentrated in the sort of 20 to $30 bottles than it is at the $150 bottles. So first of all, I just want to say something. I love the word kerfuffle. It's just such a good word. It's like, you know, kerfuffle. Anyways. Um, it's fun I to think, say. I think that's yes. the strongest thing for it. I, I think, I think um, you know, but what you're both saying is, is really on point here. Um, what I think is hard to predict, though, is like what sort of like the of these core lower brands or sort of entry-level brands for them will ultimately stay 
entry level. Like, especially with a brand like Buffalo Trace. Like, the fact that now Buffalo Trace bourbon, which it has for for the longest time, even until a few years ago, was still sort of like in that $20 price range, is now on allocation in places right. because people can't find Blanton's and Weller and is insane. I don't think Buffalo Trace ever expected that to happen. Mm-hmm. But again, I'm not sure they're so upset about it. <laughs> um, and I think that, you know... The same thing could be said for Heaven Hill, right? There's like a, you know, Heaven Hill sort of prides themselves on always being the economical distillery, right? Like they have Evan Williams, they have Elijah Craig. Like those are really, you know, easy price points. But look, Larceny, which is one of theirs, has continued to gain accolades from publications like ours, et cetera. And it's now harder and harder and harder to find because people are realizing, wow, it's really good juice and they're willing to pay higher for it. And so then that becomes allocated and the prices go up. And I will say, I actually, from the conversations we had, I think these huge expansions are being misinterpreted by most American consumers. Mm -hmm. We think these expansions are meant to meet the demand in the United States, and they're not. You think it's global? It's global. Okay. They they are now seeing this is their time to go global. This is their time to expand into a lot of the rest of the world while everyone in the U.S., while pop culture, while culture writ large is talking about bourbon, right? This is their chance to make taters in France. Yep. Right? Like, well, whiskey is almost 25% of global spirits volume in 2021. Yep. And so it's it's they want to go even more global with these brands where still Blanton's in certain markets in Europe is not heavily allocated. You know, there's you can still find it in, in certain places. Right. It's more expensive than the U.S., obviously. But they want to start taking these brands around the world, having more liquid to be around the world, because, again, it, that also is a nice hedge against the American market. Right. If sure. the bourbon takes off in France, Great Britain, China, China, et cetera, right? Then a small dip can be weathered in the United States. If all their eggs are in the United States basket, then all of a sudden, if let's say, you know, five, six years from now, all the taters move on to collecting agave, right? Right. Then, you know, they could see a dip and they don't, they, they want to be prepared for that because they have gotten screwed in the past, right? I mean, the only really major market that kept high-end bourbon alive during the massive, you know, downturn of like the 70s and 80s was Japan. And that's not a huge market, mm-hmm. but they were the ones buying the really high-end bourbon that was being made at the time because there was an appreciation in Japan for whiskey and cocktail culture in general and things Scotch, like that, right? Yeah. Scotch. Mm-hmm. So I think that's more of what's happening here. Interesting. And Yes, I think also to Zach's point, probably to keep a demand at least from their whatever they would consider to be their entry level liquid, um, but not to make sure that it's going to be easier to find Blanton's or Stag or some of these other bottles that, like as we said, is a benefit. And I and I will say this from our experience at BCB, right? So Sazerac had a huge booth, right, Zach? Like massive. And Sazerac doesn't just sell Buffalo Trace. They sell vodkas, you know, they sell whiskeys from India, gins from South Africa, like lots of different liquids. Rum Agricole. Yeah. Oh, God, that Rum Agricole, I think, burned my face off. But, <laughs> uh, you know, 70, 70% alcohol, Zach. Yeah, it was 70, wow. 72. 72 yeah. or something. It, it was, was insane. Um, but they, it's so interesting what they do, even with the trade, is... They say to you as you're coming by the booth, we've got a bottle of stag here behind the booth. If you taste some other stuff, we'll give you a pour of stag. 
Mm. That's a huge benefit. Because, yeah. and, and, you know, everyone has said that companies like Sazerac, who have lots of other liquid, have used this to their advantage, right? Got to buy a lot of X liquid to get a few of Y. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't see why they would ever give that sort of model up. It's too, it, it's, it's like, it's too beneficial for them, right? If it was so easy to get, you know, Weller 12 or something, then they would not be able to get you to buy a lunch, a bunch of their vodka. And they would need you to also buy a bunch of their vodka. <laughs> so, sure. I But they mean, claim that that, they claim that's not true. Yeah, I don't right? believe it. Like Do you believe our, it? Well, in our Wheatley vodka piece that Aaron Goldfarb wrote. They claim, I know. Mm-hmm. But every single retailer will tell you differently. <laughs> every retailer will be like, yeah, I buy a bunch of Wheatley and all of a sudden I get stag and, you know, pap, <laughs> you know, a few bottles of stag and pappy and some Eagle Rare and like, oh, you know, here, here's how I get to get it. And if I didn't buy a lot of Wheatley, I don't think I'd get as, as you know, easily access to the other stuff. Yeah. Sure. I mean, come on. It's just how economics works, right? It's <laughs> like you got you to buy this to get that. So yeah. I don't know. But, but, to, but to the other point, which is, you know, do we think there's anything that will slow the craze down? That's where I'm, I'm more interested. Because I think the, the, you know, your, the first question of is, you know, is this being done to keep up with demand? I think we've pretty much answered. I don't think that it is in the United States. I think it's for global and for the entry level bourbons. We'll also mention that detail of like what what whiskey didn't they they skipped a year of production. Right. Uh, St- uh, George, George T. T. Stag. They didn't even produce because it wasn't. Like, they claim it's because it wasn't up to their standards at uh-huh. Sazerac, but I think it's because maybe they might have had too much of it. And they're like, let's hold some back to make demand even higher. Um, who knows? Again, just an assumption. Don't come for me, Sazerac. I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, but I'm curious. Do you, do you either of you think there's anything that could slow this thing's just massive, massive appeal? I mean, agave spirits. I think tequila. Uh, tequila's pa- Back to our IWSR data, yeah. tequila's pacing third behind vodka and whiskey right now. It's growing at a faster rate. And by the end of 2022, tequila's predicted to be more valuable than t- whiskey in the U.S. Um, and over the More next, valuable. More valuable. But then over the next five years, tequila's forecasted to grow 67% with ultra premium, the ultra-premium pre- segment seeing the highest rates of forecast growth. So then will it ultimately leapfrog whiskey? I think so. I think that's what they're saying. Yeah. But I think it's important in this context to note that the entire spirits category is also growing really rapidly in yes. the U.S. And yes. so I think it's possible that whiskey's reign at the top of the heap might be short-lived, as we're talking about here, that that agave spirits or tequila specifically might pass it. But I still think that it's hard to see in the medium term like uh, anything like a, a real downturn in the amount of bourbon right. that people are consuming. And, and just in terms of like absolute quantity, I think it's going to continue to grow. I think one of the interesting things is, is there significant either consolidation or shuffling of some of these distilleries? Because I think that's you know, we're, there there already has been a, a fair bit of consolidation in bourbon, um, but you still have a, a decent number of in of different, um, not always independent, but but sort of separately owned bourbon distilleries. But it would not perhaps shock me to see consolidation as the category continues to grow. In part, maybe to allow for more market penetration in other countries. Again, I think Adam is very right to point at you know that, that all these companies are have they're not ignoring the United States as a market obviously it's their most important market but they're seeing a lot of potential the world over and penetrating some of those global markets might be tricky for some of these producers that have really been US focused until quite recently yeah i think that's true 
I don't know that it will affect growth. It just is a thing to think about. Yeah. I mean, the thing that's always been so interesting to me about all of this, and we've talked about this a bunch, is that though what is popular when we talk about whiskey is bourbon. Yeah. You know, and I and the only thing I wonder is like, do we think we will ever see the resurgence of scotch? Or, you know, will these the flavor profiles are just so different. You know, will we see people who immediately run to scotch as their, you know, their next sort of spirit uh, because they just love whiskey? Or on the other hand, are they all going to move to añejos and extra añejos, which are big and rounded and sweet because of the agave plant? That Because, you know, once the Aging. tequila gets aged, it creates a lot of those flavor profiles that people like in bourbon that it doesn't have when it's a Blanco. And I think... You know, I'd be really curious to to totally dig into what's happening with tequila and is the growth coming from the Blancos? Because that's what all, you know, that's all the agave aficionados, the bartenders, et cetera, who are like the sort of people who are pushing agave are, of course, obviously saying like you judge an agave in a mezcal by the Blanco. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like it's the purest expression. It's how the plant's supposed to taste, yada, yada, yada. But like if you look at pieces like Aaron has written for us about what the taters are collecting. So these, bur- you know, the people who were the first big bourbon people. The next who, unicorns. They're, it's 1942. That's a, that's an añejo. You know, they're going after these aged, you know, rounder, richer tequilas. And there's, and when I was talking to Patron, they were saying as well, they're seeing growth amongst like Bordeos and things like that. They're like very rich añejo that's aged in ex bourbon barrels. Bordeaux. Bordeaux barrels. Sorry, mm-hmm. Bordeaux, Bordeaux barrels. Because people really like those flavor profiles. Yep. So I, I don't I don't know where that will happen, but I feel like it's much more likely that it'll go to something like to an añejo than it will to a scotch. Yeah. Well, right. but you're even seeing maybe not single malt because I think it, it has such a clear identity of its own, but you are seeing whiskey the world over getting bourbonified, for lack of a better word. And spirits generally. You're seeing it in rum, you're seeing it in uh cognac and armagnac, and you're seeing it with whiskeys made other places or even other American whiskeys that are not bourbon, like the influence of of new oak is growing in those categories because the market both in the US and the world over has shown a tremendous thirst for that flavor profile and so yeah. Yeah, yeah tequila is the most obvious and the biggest category but again i think there's these other spirits categories too that are that are very clearly there are producers who are like we want our whatever whether like i said whether it's a rum a tequila a, a brandy whatever we want it to taste as much like bourbon as we can while still legally being able to call it whatever the thing it actually is. Yeah, I had a barrel-aged gin at BCB. Yeah, that was I like did too. very close to bourbon. So one question, we talked about this last week with the top 50 bars, and Joanna, you brought this up, of like, what was, you know, your issue with the top 50 bars is more that, well, there's lots of issues, as we discussed. <laughs> also, thanks for all the reactions from the bartenders in the community. Uh, but, you know, that it makes it harder to get into. Do you guys think y'all peeps think uh that there might just be a backlash from consumers who are like i'm just sick of how hard it is to find some of this stuff you know that like at, at some point that this becomes the same backlash we saw against some of the really high-end wines where consumers were like you know what fuck it I I'm never going to have DRC. I can't I'm never going to have, you know, half of these wines everyone talks about, Screaming Eagle, blah blah blah. So I'm just going to go drink a really beautiful like Shannon from the Loire. You know, or 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 something, something you know, totally a, different. A Beaujolais whatever. I'm just I'm done. Mm-hmm. You know, this is too it, this is too out of reach for me. 
that's the only I guess I could potentially see is like if every because right now there are definitely bottles that people are searching for from all the big distillers. But let's be totally honest here. The one distiller that has all the bottles for the most part is is Buffalo Trace. Right. Basically anything they put out becomes allocated and people want it. You know, Makers has a few offerings, but not like crazy. Beam has a few offerings, Bookers and Bakers, but like besides that, it, they all their other stuff is still in stock and can be found. Heaven Hill, same, right? So I don't know. If that happened with all of those two, though, like if all of a sudden it was really hard to find, you know, Elijah Craig or like Evan Williams single barrel and it was really pricey. I could see people getting really just over it all. Well, and I think that's why another reason you see these producers in other categories looking to make products that would be compelling to bourbon collectors because they might be able to do it at a price point that is more sort of agreeable to a collector who's not incredibly wealthy. I also think that it could be like wine, as you described, Adam, where it's not so much some of these collectors shifting their mindset, but it's a generational change. And in the same way that people of our generation and younger looked at those wines, whether they were high-end Burgundy or Bordeaux or yeah. Napa or whatever. And we're like, we just can never try these wines unless, you know, our parents have some. Our parents have we're it, just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're never going to get to drink it. So why would that be where we focus? I think you could see people say, you know, a, people younger than us say, why do I give a shit about super premium bourbon? I can't drink it. It's I can't find it. No one has it. Maybe my uncle has a dusty bottle of, you know, George C. Stagg, but that's my only shot at it. I'm going to yeah. get into some other spirit. I'm going to get into something that feels not only more a- affordable to me, but in a way has authenticity because it's not so expensive. And that could be the other thing for bourbon that's at, at the high level. But I think the difference with bourbon versus some of these wines is that all of these producers are going to have abundant, affordable offerings. And so you're going to tell yourself in the same way that, you know, uh, what was it? Uh, I'm sure you heard this a million times, Adam, and probably you too, Joanna, right? You know, you got pitched as a as a novice drinker on Longue Nebbiolo as baby Barolo. Yeah, so you're yeah, going yeah. to get pitched whatever as, you know, baby Blantons or something. Like it's just, that's the way these producers are going to kind of approach this. And I think the the flavor appeal of bourbon is pretty eternal i think and so i don't think it's going away but it's possible that the the eye of the collector moves on to something that is just collect that is that people can find or that they can feel like they're getting more in on the ground floor of i don't know Mm -hmm. i think there will always be a group of people who will care to hunt for those bottles right the taters of course (laughs) but i do think you might like that word more than kerfuffle (laughs) it's it's just so funny that they call themselves taters (laughs) i don't think they call themselves taters (laughs) i think we call them taters. you and aaron are the only two people who call them them, actually (laughs) the taters i think reddit does too yeah um (laughs) i think this could be a good opportunity for like smaller craft bourbon brands too the ones where you know the Local brands, uh, you know, they're finally... Sometimes they figure out how to finally make it well. Right. Exactly. But that's what... We've talked about this before, right? Like, yeah. some of these brands are actually figuring it out. They're not not great anymore. Um, and it could be an opportunity for them to kind of capture some of this thirsty audience who's not finding the Buffalo Trace um, so readily anymore. Look, some of the... Like, I think Wilderness Trail is the best example of this, right? Like, yeah. it's a craft brand that figured out how to make amazing bourbon pretty quickly and all all already it's liquids on allocation nobody owns them right no they're still yeah no they're totally independent um yeah and i know people who are buying like 
barrels picks from them and stuff already. Yeah. And they're they're pretty young, uh, but figured it out and are making really, really great bourbon. I'm sure someone will buy them soon. Yeah. Um, but like that's yeah, I think I think that's a great point. As long as you can figure it out. There's and then there'll be some of the craft distillers that, you know, maybe are based in New York City, maybe Brooklyn. They just never figure it out. <laughs> Shots fired right at the end of the podcast. Like. You don't know. You don't know which one I'm talking about. Podcast at vinepair.com. Send your hate mail. Yeah, let me let me know. Or Adam at vinepair.com. Don't give it up. No, I want to read it too. Send it to the podcast email. Yeah, Zach wants to know who came for me. Yeah. Um, all right, I'll talk to you both Friday. <laughs> talk to you Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.